Satin white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you My name's Joe Greenwood. Hope you're all doing well this week. Uh, it's good to be back with the show. Um, it's been three months now since the last episode. Uh, a long three months. I, I know you, I can feel it. There's been a lot of clamour for the show to come back. Oh, no, it hasn't been th- No, it's been about two months since the best of 2014 episode, uh, which went over a treat um, from, uh, from all the great mentions I got online about it. Uh, so uh, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. Uh, there's a uh, change of direction with the new series. Um, it's going to be six episodes. And instead of doing reviews of films that are out now, um, I've decided to change it to a more historical sort of thing. Um, what I kind of wanted to do is kind of make the series now more of a guide to cinema. Kind of make it sort of like... If there's a there's a video guide, there's a film guide called The Psychotronic guides to film and that has like a really wide sort of scope of what it sort of recommends so it's stuff like Nouvelle Vague, Italian Neorealism, Kurosawa, Mizuguchi, that type of thing but it also has exploitation films, you know, Electric Glide in Blue and whatever else, uh, Vanishing Point, that type of thing. So that's the kind of thing that I want to do with this new series. And so what I decided was I was just going to pick topics, pick genres, um, and pick directors, really. Uh, There's a couple episodes coming out uh, this series. Uh, One will be on Nuri Bilga Ceylan, the Turkish filmmaker, and one will be on Paul Thomas Anderson, um, whose recent film Inherent Vice was... I think I had that at number three of my 2014 best of. A film that I love uh, and that I'll go into on that episode. Um, But yeah, uh, this week's episode is going to be about films about women. Um, Because really the history of cinema has been about men making films about women. And it's something that many directors have just continually done films about, which is what we'll explore now. Um, Also, um, I've decided also... With the odd episode, I'll do a competition for the listeners. And you can already uh, try and figure it out now. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to tell me what is the link, what am I referencing with that opening song, uh, which film am I referencing, and uh, which scene in particular. If you can get me the scene as well, that'd be great. It ties into the topic of this week's episode as well. Uh, so, yeah, listener competition there. And... You know, if I get an answer, maybe I'll send off a prize. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? Let's get into it and start talking about some films about women. Christine, come and have a bath. I've had a bath. Really? Yes, I'm very clean. Little father didn't come to work. I checked the noteboard. He, he didn't leave one. I tried to call him. I don't know, there's something wrong with the phone. You see, it's never happened before that he he didn't come to work without giving us notice. Does he have a family? He lives in the village. I don't know if he has family. Maybe this is a time when he needs to be with them. 
as I said in the intro, the history of cinema has really just been about the history of men filming women. Um, of course, there's been great partnerships, of course, between men and women, probably most famously at the beginning, between sort of von Sternberg and uh, Marlena Dietrich. Um, he sort of filmed her in this sort of very loving way, in this sort of filming her in an angelic light, um, often uh, filming her from, uh, lighting her from below, so her face would sort of light up within the... Uh, sort of cloudy mise-en-scene that he would uh, often use. Um, up to even modern-day filmmakers, probably most famously uh, Lars von Trier, with his his use of women. Really, his whole filmography has been about women um, for a number of reasons. Um, he says purely for practical reasons, he says he finds working with women a lot more rewarding and easier than working with men. Uh, he finds that men um, often try and confront him about what he wants to do with a film, whereas women are more willing to sort of go with him. Um, and they have made for great characters in his work from... Really, I think his his first great film was Breaking the Waves, uh, all the way up to his most recent film, uh, Nymphomaniac, uh, part one and two. But I, I think his... Really, his best work, he's... Um, there's a couple you could sort of claim as his best work. Probably Dogville would be the one that most people would go for. Um, saying is his best um, but for me his two best ones were his uh, sort of a back to back double whammy that he uh, did was um, Antichrist in 2009 um, and then 2011's Melancholia uh, it's what's interesting there is just about the power, those films are more about specific power dynamics between uh, women. Um, first off, Antichrist between a, a husband and wife, played by Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gansborg, who retreat to a cabin in the woods, the, uh, the area of the woods that they go into being called Eden. Uh, and of course, we never find out about who the men, uh, what the names of the man and the woman. So obviously, drawing parallels between Adam and Eve. And it's about a woman's breakdown after the death of their child. And that's the sort of film it's leading you on to believe in. It's about the sort of grieving process that a woman goes through until you get to the last ten minutes of that film where Von Trier spins it on you and reveals that the film has actually been about the acts of violence they commit against women um, and how it sort of gets brushed under the carpets, uh, which is literally how he ends the film with... Willem Dafoe killing his wife um, during her most manic of breakdowns and then sort of moving on with it and then getting on with it. It's he, he uh, He's really sort of used those characters as sort of representation of all men and all women. Um, so of course there's very much broad strokes um, in that film. Whereas something like Melancholia which on the surface is about the destruction of Earth is more about the bond between two sisters. Um, the film opens... I actually remember seeing that film at the Curzon Soho. I went, I went with a friend from uni. I remember going to see it. And we were, we still are both huge fans of Von Trier. And I remember we went to see it on... I think it was the Friday it came out. And as the, just before the film started, these women came in and they they all seemed a bit too happy to be going seeing uh, a Lars von Trier film called Melancholia. They all had like they had glasses of champagne, if I remember correctly, and they were sort of clinking it before the film started. And the opening of the film is set to, um, I think it's Wagner's um, Tristan and Isolde, um, the opening piece of that, um, as a giant planet called Melancholia, I think that's what they called it in the film, I can't remember, crashes into Earth in super slow motion, and, and you see these sort of very sort of graphic images, not graphic images, but highly stylized slow motion images of the people on, um, the characters in the film sort of reacting to this moment. I don't know, that detail always just sticks out for me from, from seeing that film. I know it's a bit of a tangent off, but I remember also looking around at the end of the film to see how they reacted to it, and uh, they all looked suitably miserable, as I was as well, actually, because it was 
It is uh, a miserable film. But that one is, uh, you go from the destruction of Earth then to the wedding of one of the sisters, played by Kirsten Dunst, as it's being organised by the other sister, played by Charlotte Gansborg, uh, as she's sort of organised it and having it at her house. And you just see then about how they interact with each other and how they uh, deal with each other's issues and treat each other with each other's issues. Which is... In typical Von Trier style, very upfront and harsh. Um, his shooting style is really sort of made for that type of acting and filmmaking. He shoots handheld, doesn't really bother with continuity, doesn't stick to the 180 degree rule. Um, he's said that what he does is he just films and films and films and films, and then in the editing, just takes the bits that he wants that he finds to be truthful. Um, and uh, it's it can be quite a jarring experience. Um, the films feel less cohesive than a traditional film because they technically are visually, but Von Trier is just always just trying to get the most maximum emotional impact out of the performances um, in his work. So they can be sort of full-on uh, experiences. But Von Trier is, I think, a great director of women. There was a time, of course, when films about women were... and still are sort of targeted at women um, of course you had stuff like romantic comedies that are specifically targeted towards women but back in the 50s uh, a women's a woman's picture was a melodrama and of course the granddaddy of them all when it comes to melodrama is Douglas Sirk uh, Sirk is m- maybe the most influential filmmaker I'll talk about on this list I would say um, he gets referenced a bit more later on, uh, he was known for his very, very stylized uh, mise-en-scene and his absolute control of it all. You don't even know have to know Douglas Sirk and who he is to know his style and what sort of things he uh, has in his films, the sort of typical suburban setting, white picket fences, uh, you know, a, a very sort of green, lots of grass, lots of green, very sort of leafy suburban areas. Maybe some of them set in autumn, uh, as is um, all that heavens allow. All that heaven uh, allows is set. Um, of course, this is the sort of setting that David Lynch uh, used for his film Blue Vel- Velvet, and he, of course, is a huge uh, Douglas Sirk fan, and he's explicitly referencing uh, these films in Blue Velvet. That Heaven and Iowa is probably Cirque's best film, and probably his most famous as well. Um, it's certainly my favourite. Um, it's a very typical Cirque uh, setup. It follows a uh, widowed uh, woman, uh, as played by Jane Wyman, who starts a relationship with her sensitive uh, gardener, as played by Rock Hudson, who in this film, I mean, Cirque just he films him it's almost like the camera is going weak at the knees and it's just swooning at him he's just Cirque really sells Rock Hudson uh, in this role and they start a relationship up which perturbs um, her family they don't like the idea that of her moving on from their father first of all and then moving on from their father to someone that they consider to be less of a lesser standard than she should be taking on and it's purely on a surface level um rock hudson is just absolutely tremendous in this but it's really jane wyman who is the star of the film and her performance is so magnificent and um 
there's a really fantastic the ending of the film is so fantastic where the family have managed to get Rock Hudson to fuck off and to sort of replace him and their father and the, her, and to fill the loneliness they buy her a TV and they tell her this this will fill all the gaps that you need this will you know every desire that you need and you, you'll never be bored with this TV and then the film just ends with a shot on the television not on blank screen and you can see Jane Wyman's face as the whole family is kind of ignoring her and just telling her this is how it's going to be and her face just being, you know, kind of holding it together but kind of crumpling at the same time. It's a really, just a fantastic film and a real gut-wrencher. It's, um, it's, it's, and it's so over the top. It's, I mean, it really is a true melodrama. Um, everything is just so emotional and that as each each sequence goes on it gets more and more melodramatic to the point of almost hysteria it's 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 almost too much at times and then when you come down for this last scene it's it's kind of a relief but all the heavens uh, allows is a very influential film on future filmmakers filmmakers like um Todd Haynes obviously who explicitly references all the heavens allows with far from heaven um where Julianne Moore plays a 50s 60s uh, suburban housewife who when she starts a relationship with her black gardener who and of course 50s 60s suburban america very taboo thing um but uh haynes goes all in with the cirque um references the white picket fences the autumnal setting it, it, it's it's full-on cirque um and of course Another filmmaker who is a huge fan of Serkin's Hollywood melodrama was the German filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder, another great director of women. Fassbinder did his version of All That, Heaven's Allo- All That Heaven Allows with um, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, where, uh, like Far From Heaven, a widowed wife brings her new boyfriend to... Um, meet her family and he's black and her family doesn't like that um, Fassbender's style is, he's just as stylized, although the term stylized I'm not really a huge fan of because I don't really think it's a critique or a pra- or praise in any way, I th- it's, for some reason everything's stylized in cinema but um, Fassbender's style's a bit different, it's more surreal trippy um, way he shoots, it almost kind of feels unnatural in a lot of ways, but he has a very distinct style that you know is Fassbinder. Um, once you've seen a couple of his films, um, which so that's the obvious homage there, and of course Francois Ozon and John Waters, huge um, Douglas Sirk fans, but the um, Fassbinder film that I wanted to talk about, there's two that you should really check out, there's the film Martha, which is a TV movie which is a sort of, a woman's picture technically um, a high melodrama about, set in a just a house where a woman waits for her husband to return and it's the emotional strife that she goes through but the one that uh, I really wanted to talk about was his film uh, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant's Ich habe ein paar Kleinigkeiten bereit. Marlene, den Lunch. Ja, da sind Sie also. Ja, da bin ich also. <laughs> Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant is isn't probably my favorite Fassbinder, and I think it's uh, probably his best um, woman's picture. Uh, it's about um, two women who start, um, who both fall for the same fashion designer, and they all sort of converge in her 
arty, tiny, arty apartment. Um, Fassbinder, like uh, Cirque, has absolute control over the mise-en-scene. It's it's very, very him. Um, it's kind of surrealistic in a lot of ways. There's It's not really heightened naturalism, but it's it's it feels like... The only way I can describe it is kind of similar to Wes Anderson in that Wes Anderson takes elements of normal uh, settings, normal design, and sort of heightens it and spins it, gives it his own spin. Uh, and also Fassbinder's camera is this really swirling kind of thing. It's camera's always moving in a sort of... Uh, always tracking in or... It, I mean, he worked with Michael Bauhaus um, on a couple films if I remember correctly, and Bauhaus then went on to work with Scorsese. Um, so if you want to see the sort of Scorsese of Goodfellas and Casino and, like, After Hours as well, which Bauhaus shot... Was it Bauhaus shot that? I can't remember. But it's that... When you think of that Scorsese way, it's the, the, the camera tracking in very quickly. This Fassbinder was the sort of first to do that style. Um, and it's... The film is... It's kind of a semi sort of sadomasochistic relationship where it's a constant power play between the two these two women in particular who fall for the fashion designer. The title itself is pure melodrama, um, which I think I'm, I, I'm not quite sure about this because I haven't seen it. But there's a Frank Capra movie called The Bitter Tea of General Yen, which I believe. Um, he is referencing that film has Barbara Stanwyck in it. I haven't seen it, but it's supposed to be absolutely brilliant. Um, and he is sort of very overt with his references to Hollywood melodrama. Um, but the, these those films sort of get this sort of feeling of sort of uncompromising sort of setting like it is just going to be a constant barrage of emotions and the intensity will just sort of rise up rise up rise up to the point of hysteria which Fassbinder does so well and uh, he sort of milks even more with his camera movements which are just so over the top at times Um, but then the performances are over the top and the setting is over the top as well there is an element of Petra von Kant which is um autobiographical for Fassbinder, there is the sort of sadomasochistic ordeal that the character Petra goes through, which uh, Fassbinder admitted was kind of similar to a a very volatile affair that he had with an actor uh, called Gunther Kaufmann, who he worked with, and apparently pushed him to the edge of his mental stability. Um, And you can feel it in in the film. It's it it feels. I mean, once you know that, I feel that you can feel it. That Fassbinder is sort of pouring everything into it. I mean, Fassbinder poured everything of himself into his work. He died in his forties, I believe. I don't even think he was forty. He died in a very young age, and he'd already produced and directed fifty films, a load of television. Most famously, probably Berlin Alexander Platz, and done lots of stage productions. He was able to do that because he used the same group of actors. Um, it actually reminds me of the first Fassbinder film that I saw was uh, I was at it was in NFT two uh, at the South Bank, and it had um, it was, had oh, what's his name from um, Death in Venice. It was um, Dirk Bogard was in it, where he plays a chocolate manufacturer in World War... just before World War Two, so, like, early 1930s Germany. And um, I can't remember the plot. I'm so bad with plot, but I remember watching and being absolutely confused by the whole thing, but dazzled by it, because I remember the colour purple very vividly. I remember the chocolate boxes being purple and purple walls everywhere. Um, what film was that? It was um, something called... It was, I think it was called Pain... Or I think it was no, it was called Despair, um, which I, I recommend seeking out. That's one of the late. I think that was a later Fassbinder, like seventy eight, seventy nine. Um, but that's very much worth uh, your time, uh, as is Petra von Kant. Um, I, I, there is a real sort of from the Fassbinder films that I've seen. There is a very consistent sort of style and lineage in the themes that he goes over. The, I'm going to wrap this segment up now, but um, by 
going on to talk about two filmmakers in particular, one who only did one film and one who made many films, both of them making films about women. There's a couple more films I just wanted to mention quite quickly. There's uh, the Mizuguchi film Street of Shame, which is Mizuguchi's last film. And he really was sort of the Japanese Cirque in that he did lots of melodramas. Street of Shame follows um, uh, Japanese uh, brothel uh, post-war. And it's sort of Mizuguchi's... um, He likes Cirque, brings the melodrama up to... Yeah, uh, he ratches up the motions constantly and constantly and just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going to the point where the film's almost going to break um, and then sort of brings you back down then for quite a sad emotional gut punch. Um, uh, I highly recommend that film. I mean, I highly recommend going and see these films knowing as little as possible. I think I, I did slightly ruin all that, heaven's, all that heaven allows, uh, so sorry about that, but whatever. Um... But I, I recommend that as a Mizuguchi film that you should check out. And then also, how can you not talk about maybe the ultimate director of women for a lot of people, not for me personally, who was known for picking very specific type of women, and that's um, Alfred Hitchcock. The Hitchcock blondes, of course, um, the type of actress that he would constantly go for. And probably my favourite Hitchcock is Marnie, which is one that's slightly overlooked and I feel should get more praise. Uh, I think it's a quite magnificent film. I mean, it's a very much a torturous film. Hitchcock did torture Tippi Hedren in the making of that film, but how can you not feel for that character watching that film? It's just so glorious. It's an absolutely fantastic film. Um, So I recommend checking that out. But uh, I want to get on now to the last couple filmmakers, directors of women. Um, the first one only did one film. It was about a woman, about an ordinary woman. Um, the film I'm talking about is Wonder by Barbara Loden. Uh, I won't go into the plot too much here. I actually wrote about it recently for Vice, and I sort of related it back to my mother, who um, kind of is the reason why, unfortunately for you lot, is the reason why this podcast exists. One, because she gave birth to me. Uh, and the other one was that she never made me do my homework, which meant that I could watch movies instead. Um, so thanks, Mum. I think the, the reason why I love that film so much is because it's just... It's so torturous and it's so agonising. And it's, it's so unfair as well. But it's... It's, it's absolutely one of the most truthful films I've ever seen. Y- you watch that film and you feel that character. You can feel it's a real-life person. And it's, it has such a great touch to it. it. It feels like there's a real sort of... I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's just the fact that I've been distracted by the... Uh, that the film was shot on 16mm so it has a very much down and dirty feel to it that was sort of common in that time Um, I'll also mention Wonder um, in a future episode on another genre that I'm going to talk about you can probably figure out what it is uh, if you've seen the film or if you read my article on it Um, but I, I just it's just absolutely magnificent, and I consider it probably the greatest film of all time. Um, uh, Loden just sort of shoots... She shoots herself because she stars in the film as well, with um, kind of this sort of Antonioni... At times Antonioni kind of distance, where you see her in these huge sort of landscapes of sort of dust and coal and gravel. Um, it kind of reminds me a bit of Red Desert... Um, and then shoots her with a sort of loving affection and sympathy, sort of similar to Fellini's Knights of Kiberia. Um, I mean, I haven't mentioned Fellini on this podcast at all, but I could really do one just purely about the women in Fellini films. Um, but it's, it's a film that I would consider maybe the greatest of all time, um, I don't know, I'm not doing a good job explaining why it's the greatest film of all time. Um, it's just so agonising, and it's so... 
that doesn't make it the greatest film of all time, obviously, but it's something that is... I, I just haven't seen anything like it. It's it's so uniquely her. It's, and it's, it's a tragedy that Loden never made another film after that. She sadly died of cancer. And she... Um, it was just really unfortunate that she never got to make another film. But uh, anyway, I'll go into greater detail now on the next director, who I consider to be the great director of women. Um, if you look at his films and the scope of them and the scope of the female characters, they're all com- nearly all completely different from each film to the last. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about uh, Roman Polanski. I found these in your backyard in the pond. They belonged to your husband, didn't they? Didn't they? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes, positively. It's where he was drowned. What? There's no time to be shocked by the truth. The coroner's report proves that he had salt water in his lungs when he was killed. Just take my word for it, all right? Now, I want to know how it happened, and I want to know why, and I want to know before Escobar gets here, because I don't want to lose my license. I don't know what you are talking about. This is the craziest, the most insane thing. Stop it! I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. But his girl is a witness. You had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to... You can... Let's just go through it. Like, you've got Francois Dorliac in cul-de-sac, who's this sort of cheeky ingenue. Um, I think that's the right word I'm looking for. And then you have... Uh, then before that, you had the wife in Knife in the Water who sort of cuckolds her husband. Then you have Isabella Rajani in The Tenant. Um, Faye Dunaway's sort of cold and ruthless... Uh, you know, uh, upper crust sort of woman in Chinatown who then sort of crumbles slowly and becomes more human as the film reveals itself to to us. Um, and then uh, Natasha Kinsky in Tess as well. Um, and then Emmanuel Seigneur in um, Bitter Moon, which I think is a really underrated Polanski film. Uh, I, I think it's really quite tremendous. And then also in Frantic as well, which you should watch really because it's quite a stripped-down Polanski film in a lot of ways, in that it's a very basic setup. American um, doctor of something, I I can't remember, comes to Paris to do a presentation with his wife, and in the opening ten minutes his wife goes missing and he spends the rest of the film looking for her. And Seigneur comes along and helps him at some stage, but there's there's moments in that film where... It's great, you see Harrison Ford doing coke in a Parisian nightclub, even though he doesn't really want to. He thinks that he does. if he does the coke, then the guy will give him an answer, but he's like, oh no, I'm just dealing coke instead. So he gets pissed off at him. And then later in the film, when Harrison Ford's been looking for her for days, and he's finally got a lead, he's just haggard, he just he looks like he smells, and he just looks like he hasn't got anything left, and sort of disguise himself with Senye. They, they sort of dance to Grace Jones in a nightclub. And it's it's great because <laughs> he just looks. It's, that's the great thing with Polanski is that he had a sort of really good control of comedy in his films as well. Apparently, Sanya is also great in uh, Venus in Furs, the film that he had come out last year. Um, and then also um, Olivia Williams in The Ghost, The Ghost Writer or The Ghost. I can't remember what it was called in here in the UK. Um, which I think is a, a very good film, actually. I think it's very underrated, and it has... Polanski has a really good use of um, green screen CGI in that he kind of does it poorly, but that's sort of the point of it. It's It kind of makes you aware that you're watching a film uh, as you're watching it, and it's slightly ugly and distracting, but it's, it's really quite well done. But the film in particular I wanted to talk about, which I consider my favourite Polanski film... Um, I remember seeing it. I can, or I remember every single film I've seen at the cinema and where I was when I was sat for it. I saw it in NFT one on like a Thursday, sort of like three in the afternoon. I knew nothing about this film, pretty much nothing about it. It was probably the second or third Polanski film I'd, I'd seen. So on a beautiful print, and um, it's Repulsion. 
which again, female lead in it is so different to pretty much anything else in Polanski's work. Uh, it was played by Catherine Deneuve, who, I mean, was one of the most beautiful women to ever appear in cinema. Uh, and is just so great in this, where she plays a um, beautician in a Kensington sort of beauty parlor, um, and she sort of and she lives with her sister. I think she's Belgian, if I remember correctly, in this film. And she, the sister, goes off with her boyfriend for a, a week, and uh, Deneuve loses her mind in the film. And uh, thing I always remember from the film is just images and sounds. I remember the the uh, rotting rabbit meat um, that she takes out of the fridge and just leaves on the floor in the living room. Uh, I remember the hands coming out the wall and, of course, the man behind the wardrobe. And then the sound of the ticking clock. I always remember that and the, drip, and the drip of a tap. That's what Polanski does so well in this film. Oh, how can I forget? Also, you had uh, Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby. That's maybe Polanski's most famous film. Uh, which is great, and has sort of semi sort of ties to this in that it's a, an apartment film. Polanski does has set quite a few films just in apartments. Uh, the Tenant, obviously, being one of them, where Polanski himself is in the lead. Um, uh, but back to Repulsion, she um, she loses her mind. But the thing that makes it so interesting is that Polanski really does understand women, and the simple thing is is because he understands men as well. In the sense, the sort of desires between the men, between men and women, and the games that we play with each other, either subconsciously or consciously. Um, um, there's a really great um, quote about repulsion from the writer uh, Molly Haskell. Uh, she said that the core of Polanski's work is the image of a of the anaesthetized woman, the beautiful, the inarticulate, and possibly even murderous, um, which. I agree, that's sort of like the core of his film, she, which she then takes on to criticise the film by saying, uh, and in particular, Repulsion, saying the titillations of torture are stronger than the bonds of empathy. Which I think is right, but I don't think that's a criticism. You know, Polanski has removed... Polanski's re- removed mortality is exactly why he is brilliant. He's so empathetic to his characters that even though he's a sort of above the pain in some respects. Um, he's kind of personal, but he's also impersonal at the same time. He has this balance that, which is very strictly him. But that's what makes Polanski's films about women so great, is that they are about sort of these obscure sort of slippery complexities of desire. You know, he desires the women that are on the screen in some respect, but he knows that he can't get too personal with them. That he knows he has to be sort of distant with them. And it, it really is something quite special. Tu saresti capace di piantare tutto per ricominciare la vita da capo? Di scegliere una cosa, una cosa sola, e di essere fedele a quella. Riuscire a farla diventare la ragione della tua vita. Una cosa che raccolga tutto, che diventi tutto proprio perché la tua fedeltà che la fa diventare infinita. Saresti capace? Ecco, ascolta, se io ti dicessi, Claudia. Da che parte si va? Non conosco la strada. E tu? Saresti capace? Ci deve essere la sorgente qui vicino. The Leftfield Share is a part of Holdfast Network, which is a podcasting network of podcasts. Um, there's so many great podcasts you can listen to at Holdfast Network. Um, including Left Field Shouts, obviously. There's also, uh, there's a new podcast on there. Well, there's a couple of new podcasts since uh, Left Field Shout was last on. Uh, one that I'm uh, a huge fan of, started before it came on to look, uh, and that's Basement Tapes uh, Radio. That's um, hosted by two guys, uh, Sam Bedford, who you can follow on Twitter at, at SamBedford88, and Harry Walsh. On this radio show, they pick a theme, and then they pick ten songs around that theme. Uh, the latest one is Space, so you can listen to stuff like 25 Miles by Edwin Starr and Soul Sync by The Sun, so it's that kind of thing where they'll sort of pick things around it. Uh, slightly annoyed there's nothing from uh, Permission to Land by The Darkness, you know, slight fuck up there on Sam, Sam and uh, by uh, Sam and Harry, but 
Can't win them all. Uh, also on there is South London Hardcore, which is hosted by Jack McEnroy and Steve Walsh, uh, who also set up Holdfast Network. There's also uh, Steve Walsh is on two other podcasts. He has Process, which is about which has comic book writers and people in that industry come in and talk about the process of making comic books. There's also Wikipedia, which is just about random stuff. Um, if I'm led to believe by the bio, there's also Ford the Hamlet, which is about Dulwich Hamlet Football Club. Uh, so if you want your know, fix of non-league football stuff, go there. And if you, uh, I recommend this quite a bit. Check out Daniel Ruiz Tizon's Advent Calendar, which was he released twenty-five episodes, about ten minutes long, all around Christmas stuff, uh, based around him and uh, his life and other things. Very, very good. Um, he's a very good podcaster. I recommend checking out his other stuff as well. He did a series called. Um, uh, the Letters, Letters, I think it was called, where he wrote letters to different people in his life, uh, and it's very good. So, yeah, check out Holdfast Network, there's lots of good things on there. There's also a submissions page, so if you want to submit your idea for a podcast, you can go there. Uh, it's It would be a good idea if you have a couple episodes done and out there, and you know, so do a couple episodes with your mate, if you want to do a podcast on something that you know about would be a good idea uh I, I can't really riff on an idea i mean holdfast network's pretty much got you covered anyway you know you got your podcast on film that's this you got your podcast on football got your music got your south london got comics what else do you need but if you think you can add to holdfast network then submit your idea for a podcast at holdfastnetwork.com forward slash submissions Della storia che mi hai raccontato non ho capito quasi niente. Ma scusa, un tipo così, come tu l'hai descritto, che non vuol bene a nessuno, non fa mica tanta pena, sai. In fondo è colpa sua. Che cosa pretende dagli altri? Perché credi che io non lo sappia? Come sei noiosina, anche tu. Ah, ma non ti si può dire proprio niente. Quanto sei buffo con quel cappellaccio truccato da vecchio. Io non capisco. Incontro una ragazza che lo può far rinascere, che gli ridà vita. E lui la rifiuta. Perché non ci crede più? Perché non sa voler bene. Perché Let's non è vero get into some listener questions, which is normally my favorite part of every episode. Uh, this one comes from James, who is the co-host of the wrestling podcast that I do. Uh, called Boston Crab Pod. You can uh, listen to that on mixcloud.com forward slash Boston Crab Pod. Um, his question is, Bruno Ganz, what's Bruno Ganz's best role? Is it odd he is most renowned for playing both an angel and the closest historical figure to Satan? Um, yeah, it is. That's quite a good contrast, actually, how he's uh, done that. Um, obviously, Played Hitler in uh, Downfall. So uh, that's the angel part. <laughs> uh, no, uh, he and he played an angel in Vin Vendor's Wings of Desire. Um, my favourite, actually, Bruno Gans performance is probably my favourite Vin Vendor's film, which is um, The American Friend, which is um, his adaptation of, I think, uh, Ripley Underground, the Patricia Highsmith novel. Um, Ripley... Uh, one of the Ripley series, you know, where um, Anthony Minghella probably did the most famous one, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which had Matt Damon and Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow and Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is um, a film that I like a lot. Apparently some people don't like it, but um, I think it's a great film. Um, but there's also the French version, uh, Saint Soleil, which is just so, so good as well. Very steamy film. Um so yeah, uh, probably the American friends. Vin Vendors will come up actually again um, this series because uh, of the genre that I'm planning to do an episode on, and uh, I think he's quite a, such an interesting filmmaker. He, for a while, he just stopped kind of doing features. He just went off and did documentaries. If, if I got my facts right there, um, I'm not too good with like the timelines of some filmmakers. But, um, yeah, it is odd that he managed to play both an angel and 
Hitler. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Downfall actually as a film. I don't know if maybe all the YouTube parodies uh, where they've redone the uh, redubbed the subti- subtitles. So uh, Hitler's doing something topical that he's getting pissed off about. I uh, got this one as well. Uh, when will super- this superhero film trend end? If ever, uh, what do you make of them? Uh, I got a feeling I answered this question before in the last series, but um, if not, yeah, it'll end. It, it, that's the thing, Hollywood. I mean, I don't really go to see that many films uh, like that at the cinema. I'll probably see like one or two a year. Um, like, I'm not that bothered about seeing the Avengers or whatever, but I'll, I'll end up seeing one of them at some stage. Um, here's the thing, Hollywood goes through like these cycles where um, a specific thing becomes quite popular. Uh, 80s had a lot of like buddy cop movies were a thing for a while and then late 80s into 90s it was really like action movies 70s of course had sort of like the um, uh, films like Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno like um, semi not disaster movies but like these sort of films that had massive casts that had like Paul Newman Steve McQueen and Gene Hackman and then like like Candice Bergen, like it, it, like these really quite huge casts um, doing those sort of like semi sort of disaster films. Not a disaster film because that's more like Day After Tomorrow, but um, yeah, I, I thought. Uh, but so it goes through cycles. So eighties into nineties was like action movies like Die Hard and Last Boy Scout. So and um, so guys like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, um, and of course like the Terminator. Guys like Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Bruce Willis were very popular at the time. And then you also had, it went into, like, 90s. There was a lot of, sort of, if I remember correctly, like, sci-fi sort of things, like, fantasy. Uh, sci-fi stuff like The Matrix and, um, what the fuck is that? Independence Day and, uh, um... What was that uh, Paul W.S. Anderson film? Event Horizon, I think that's what it was called. Stuff like that. And then sci-fi fantasy into, like... Then it went into fantasy, so like Lord of the Rings. But really, the main thing that came from that era was the trilogy. Like, trilogies became such a huge thing. Um, So... And that's just continued on to now, to the point where there's not even trilogies anymore. It's just whole cinematic universes like the Marvel Universe or like the X-Men one that they're doing uh, at Fox. Um, they tried to do a Spider-Man one at Sony, but that kind of fell on his ass. Then you have DC at Warner Brothers. Yeah, comic book movies, are, uh, they'll die out eventually. I think the thing that will take over next in terms of like big properties would be something like video game adaptations, because I know there's a Splinter Cell movie coming about. I know there's one for The Last of Us, which is a game that I love. Uh, there's the Assassin's Creed one that has Michael Fassbender attached to it and Marion Cotillard. So it's a, it's an interesting move that's going to happen. I think the Splinter Cell one, if I remember correctly, has Tom Hardy in the uh, to take that. Oh, Metal Gear Solid. There's a Metal Gear Solid movie coming along. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what it'll be. I mean, this is the thing. If you, get, if you see those films and you think oh, there's no good movies anymore. You're not looking. You don't even have to look hard. Like, there's so many great movies released. Almost every week there's a movie, new film released, that you can go to the cinema and see and enjoy. And, um, yeah, just don't rely on Hollywood for all your films. And fucking watch a subtitled movie from time to time. I mean, Jesus, it doesn't take much. Um, So, yeah. I don't know if I answered either of those questions particularly well, but, you know, that's how it is. You can send in questions, by the way, um, if you go to holdfastnetwork.com forward slash askjoe. Uh, you can go there, or you can just at me on Twitter, uh, at leftfieldshout. Uh, so, yeah, that's those are your ways if you want to send me some questions. <laughs> There's one of Simon's books. 
on Reddit. Nor have I. I'm not interested in Egypt, darling. She left it behind one evening. You can have it if you like. Oh, you're very kind. I would love to read it. Magnificent place you've got here. Better than where I live, I can tell you. <laughs> Sorry, if you don't mind me asking, is the rent very high? I don't pay for it. It belongs to my brother. He's gone off to Peru for a few months, a year, traveling. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as I said previously, you can follow at uh, Leftfield Show on Twitter uh, and also holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll be back next week when, we'll, when I'll be uh, talking about something else. Uh, not quite decided yet on the order of this series. Um, thinking maybe I'll go like genre, then a director, then back to genre, then director, something like that. I'm also thinking of doing one about an era, because uh, I've got a question about what is the best era for films, and I think there's quite a... That could be quite a good episode, actually, because I think my answer is a little bit left-field. Um, sorry. Um, let's wrap it up, then. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll be back next week uh, to keep on listening to The Left-Field Show. Uh, have a nice week and I'll speak to you soon. Beauty,